This episode of Physically Spiritual will explore God's vision for the sacrament of matrimony and how marriage in the church teaches us about God's love and how we can give our whole life to the Lord. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I have discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Welcome back to Physically Spiritual. As we get started today, I just wanted to share our opportunities that if you want to support everything we're doing here at Awaken Catholic, consider becoming a member of the Awaken Nation. Awaken Catholic is a new Catholic apostolate, and we're passionate about sharing the truth of the Catholic Church through beauty, especially in the new media. So go to awakencatholic.org forward slash donate to become a member of the nation. With your membership in the nation, you'll get access to premium content and the satisfaction that you're helping all of this happen to build the kingdom of God. Consider downloading the Awaken app. The Awaken app is a, a beautiful new app that helps you to access all of the content we publish at Awaken Catholic. The Awaken app includes the ability to watch or listen to all the shows. It has a social media function to it that if you're looking for a healthier alternative to social media or just an opportunity to interact with the show hosts, uh, the Awaken app is your place to look. Go to theawakenapp.io or search for the Awaken app on the Google Play Store or Apple App Store. Uh, if you like this content, please like, follow, subscribe to the content, hit that bell notification on YouTube, uh, give it a thumbs up, a comment, or a rating. All this interaction helps other people to find these videos and podcasts. It will essentially force the big tech companies to evangelize. Uh, so please interact with the content wherever you find it, whether it's on social media, video, podcast, or audio formats. And if you're looking for anything that I am working on or publishing, you can go to becominggift.com. The topic of today is marriage, but particularly the sacrament of matrimony. And I share that it's part of a second series of Physically Spiritual. We're going through uh, what I call the three-legged stool or these three pieces of life that are the support that go into us becoming more and more like the Lord. The first is the seven sacraments of the church. The second is is a contemplative and mystical prayer. And the third is the ascetical life or different ways we give our life to the Lord through prayer and sacrifice. Um, so we're working our way through that first leg of the stool of the seven sacraments. And here is our sixth sacrament, matrimony. And I say the sacrament of matrimony to be specific because really when uh, two baptized Catholics get married in the church, in a way, three marriages are sort of happening. There's a natural marriage that's happening. Uh, you could think of this as like the marriage of Adam and Eve. The church believes that Adam and Eve were married. And there wasn't a government to have a contract uh, or there wasn't a church there to witness the marriage, but they were truly married in their relationship, in their relationship with the Lord. There's a second marriage that happens between the couple in the church, and that's a legal contract that's signed, right? The couple before leading up to the marriage goes and gets a uh, marriage license from whatever authority, whatever uh, government is in place. And then that marriage is also a legal contract. There's another layer to that marriage. In marriage in the church, we recognize as a sacrament that although marriage 
uh, predated the incarnation, predated when Christ came and instituted the seven sacraments. We believe that Jesus rose marriage to the level, to the dignity of a sacrament in his work and in his mission. And in a sense, it was uh, something of the natural order that wasn't lost due to sin, right? It was a, a good of God's original plan that the pe- that people continued to enjoy after the fall. But Jesus took that good and elevated it to be a, a supernatural good, meaning a, a, a vehicle for grace in our life. Uh, so that's what I want to focus on in this episode. You know, there's, there's almost no institution in our world that's changed as drastically as marriage has in the last 50 years. And of course, uh, people of faith are on all sides of the debates around these changes and shifts. And I don't want to wade into that controversy. You know, I'm not here to um, do apologetics or or just simply lay out the church's teaching. But what we're doing here on Physically Spiritual is we're looking at the intersection of physical health and spirituality, and we're trying to uh, take it to the next level to help people in the church and out of the church to live uh, to live a life more and more in accord with God's design both by uh, the light of what we can find by reason and the light of what we can find by faith. Uh, So that's what I'm going to do in this episode, too. I'm going to lay out the church's vision for matrimony to show what this sacramental marriage offers the world, offers the whole world, not just those that are in a sacramental marriage, but what it offers to everyone who who comes to encounter a sacramental marriage through their friends, family, or just through their acquaintances. Uh, So these last two sacraments that we're talking about, matrimony and holy orders, are called in the catechism sacraments at the service of communion. Sacraments at the service of communion or simply sacraments of service. So every sacrament is a, there's something we experience with our senses, but then that physical thing is a vehicle for grace a vehicle for God to share his divine life with us. Uh, so what we're saying is that, that matrimony, this marriage, this covenant between husband and wife, there's something on the, on the surface, something that we experience with our senses that happens both on the wedding day, but then throughout their married life together. And, and through this covenant bond, through this relationship, uh, through their life together, the couple experiences God's love through one another. But then it also expands out into the world, whether it be through um, through the way that they manage their home and all their relationships with other people, but especially through the children that come from their relationship. Paragraph 1604 of the Catechism says this as sort of a foundation of marriage. It says, God who created man out of love also calls him to love the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. For man is created in the image and likeness of God, who is himself love. Since God created him, man and woman, their mutual love becomes an image of the absolute and unfailing love with which God loves man. It is good, very good, in the Creator's eyes. And this love which God blesses is intended to be fruitful and to be realized in the common work of watching over creation. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. So so the foundation of marriage is that we as humans are created in the image and likeness of God, and God is love. So our deepest, most fundamental vocation is to love. 
We express this on first and foremost by loving God with our whole heart, mind, and soul, but then to love our neighbor as ourself, right? This is the, the great commandment of love that Jesus Christ gives us. But this commandment to love is fulfilled in a special way as a married couple, as people in communion with one another um, in the sacrament of marriage. So we're not just made in the image and likeness of God as an individual, but we're also made in the image and likeness of God as a communion of persons. As humans, we're not designed to be alone. From the very beginning, God proclaimed it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for humankind to be alone. So we're created for communion. We're created for union. So we, in a sense, are more perfectly in the image and likeness of God as people loving each other how God loves than we are just on our own. We're becoming a a more intense image of God's love to the world. Now, I want to be clear that in, in a way the church calls us to incarnate this love of God in two different vocations, right? One is the married state, the state of of a covenant of love between two people in the image and likeness of God, and the other is in a celibate state. In the next episode of Physically Spiritual on the sacraments, so three episodes from now, we'll talk about holy orders, and, and this is the ordination of men to the diaconate, the priesthood, and to be bishops, so the, the church actually in, in the West, meaning the Roman church, chooses from those men called to celibacy, from amongst those men, those who will be clerics, those who will be ordained deacons, priests, and bishops. But, but the, the foundation, right, the core of the identity of those men, their vocation to love at core is of celibacy. Um, and we'll talk more about that in the coming episode. But what I want to say is that celibacy isn't a vocation that's lacking in communion or union, right? But it's, it's a vocation that the man is called to love the way that we'll all love in heaven, right? It's, it's a relationship of love with God and with the church in a way that images more perfectly the love that we'll all have as church toward God in heaven. Um, but this particular calling to love in matrimony, right, it's saying that it's, it's very good, in the Creator's eyes, uh, this love is blessed is blesses and intended to be fruitful and to be realized in the common work of watching over creation. Right? So there's something about um, the call of a couple to be generative, to bring life into the world, that while it's it's sort of most intensely brought about in in bringing children into the world, it's also expressed in their whole life. Right, there's a call uh, that's fundamental to humanity um, to uh, till the garden or to manage the natural creation. Right, so even Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned had this vocation of, of sort of managing and cultivating the garden. There's something that we bring as humans with our power of reason into the natural order that when we follow God's design, uh, we, we sort of upgrade the created world. Now, on the other hand, in the modern world, what we see a lot is is the way that we interact with the natural world is is in a form of domination, is is a way of subduing it that that manipulates the natural world to the human end, um, forgetting that the natural world has its own its own purpose, right, its own dignity, separate from what humanity gives it. Um, so we might contrast it in two different ways, like for example, a, a way of um, managing the garden or cultivating the garden might be something like a, a fruit tree that's pruned, 
right? If a fruit tree just grows naturally, uh, a lot of the energy of the plant is expanded in in the expansion of its branches and the the creation of its leaves and the boundless growth of the fruit tree. Um, But we've discovered through human ingenuity that if you prune that tree, right, more of the, the energies of the plant go into the production of fruit. So in a way that the dignity of that tree, the end of that tree is, is brought to a more perfect place by the management, by the, um, by the cooperation of human reason, right, on the natural order. And we might contrast that um, with maybe a more industrial style of agriculture, right, where um, you might take a, a natural plot of land and, and aggressively till the soil and then impose a, a single crop on the land, a monoculture on the land, and then the application of a collection of different chemicals to then put inputs into the soil to, to force it to produce fruit. Right, So this more industrial model of agriculture ends up degrading the soil health and creating, um, uh, over time, a, a damage to the natural environment. Um, and, and then on the other hand, it could also put us in a situation where it's unhealthier for us as humans to consume that food, right? All of this is uh, being studied by science. Um, But I I share that in a way of contrast, because the way that we think about, um, the way that we think about managing the natural world in our contemporary context is often in this model of domination, this model of control, this model of possession of power. Uh, And when we're talking about this, um, this stewardship that we're called to at base from our vocation to love, it's really a management of cooperation. In a sense, as a human person, I don't own anything, right? God owns everything. Everything has its own dignity by being God's creation. And my vocation as a human is sometimes to possess things for the sake of the common good and for the dignity of the thing itself and for it to even more perfectly fulfill right, its, its own nature, so I, so humans are, are given, in a sense, possession of the natural world, or we might even use the term dominion or, or, or possession, in order to fulfill the vocation, right? the calling, the purpose, the nature of humanity itself. And this is fundamental to understand the church's vocation of marriage. Because when the church talks about marriage, it talks about the spouses, in a sense, um, possessing rights over one another, or having ownership over one another's body, or the idea of this sort of mutual submission to one another. The church uses all of this language of of ownership, of possession, of stewardship, of dominion in a way. But if we're using our modern lenses, our modern glasses to understand what the church means by this, right? all we're doing is we're reading in the way that we understand our relationship with nature, which is power and domination, so we end up on one of two extremes, and that extreme is either this sort of uh, natural romanticism where you just let everything go and it's better off because humans aren't involved in it, or there's, there's this sort of uh, domination and submission dynamic where what we need to do is we need to impose human reason on the natural order in order to get what we want out of it. Right? We, we give nature its purpose and its value by imposing our will on it and making of it what we want it to be. So when we're talking about marriage, though, and then we're talking about the beginning of children, we have to come at it with the church's vision of stewardship, what the church's vision of ownership and dominion is, not what the world's vision of power is. 
Um, so when when we have our spouse, for lack of better terms, uh, we're, we're having them for the purpose of bringing them into a fuller dignity, right? That they could more and more be what they're called to be. It's, it's uh, an exchange of gift and an exchange of love where there's an augmentation of the dignity of the other. And then similarly, by beginning and raising children, you could similarly think of those two extremes. And, and you might have these kind of two extremes expressed in different styles of parenting literature there is out, out there. On the one extreme, there's this sort of uh, romanticism or naturalism where you just sort of let the child be. They sort of discover for themselves what's good. They are are free to sort of roam and you let the sort of natural goodness um rise out of the child naturally. And then on the other hand, you might think of the other extreme is where you need to impose the severe and extreme discipline on the child. You need to force them to think correctly. You need to form them uh, in order that they that they be someone. Uh, the church's vision for raising children is, is informed also by this vision of stewardship of the natural order. It's somewhere in between, but it's also somewhere that it transcends this power dynamic by which we interpret the world in the modern sense. Um, and that's kind of a, a long segue, but I, we need to start there to recognize that as we're talking about the church's vision of marriage, if we keep on our glasses that the modern world gives us, it's going to remain obscure no matter how much we think about it. Right? We need to, to to remove that modern glass of that everything is a power dynamic, this false dichotomy between um between what humans bring to the table and what nature brings to the table and realize that we're, we're called into this cooperative relationship of stewardship and love of an exchange of gift and a, a bringing of one another into mutual fulfillment um, based on the nature and design that God has given us. Um, so in this context, possession isn't to the detriment of the other. Right, so it's it's not to the extent of um, it's not a, a zero sum where like the more I have, the less they have, or the more they have, the less I have. But in our mutual giving and receiving, there's actually a multiplication that happens, a bringing of life into the world that happens, and that's the basic form of marriage. By me loving my wife, and by her loving me. We're, we're imaging God in a profound way that releases new life into the world that wouldn't be there otherwise. Right? And this is, this is very profoundly imaged in bringing a child into the world, but it's also imaged in, for example, the management of property, right? of having a home, of having land, of, of having a, a homestead. And in that, hopefully, you're, you're bringing a certain order to that space in order for it to have a transcendent purpose. It's even, um, in, in, a, in a lesser degree, expressed in having, in, uh, having a, a pet. There's a tradition in the church where, where by having animals, you're, you're raising them up to a higher dignity. Right? There's a stewardship of the animal that now they participate uh, in humanity in a way they couldn't have otherwise. Now, now recognizing you can take this to an extreme where an animal becomes sort of a substitute child. And we don't take it to that extreme, but there is something of, of bringing that animal up into the dignity of a home, to living a life that they wouldn't be capable of in the natural order. Right? So we're called to this kind of stewardship of love, uh, this dynamic of self-gift for the expansion of life. All right, paragraph 1601 of the Catechism says, the matrimonial covenant 
by which man and woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole life is by its nature ordered toward the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. This covenant between baptized persons has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of a sacrament. This is the basic definition of marriage in the catechism of the church. Uh, so it's ordered toward the good of the spouses, right? toward the spouses becoming more and more what they're called to be, um, living the life that the Lord calls them to be and growing in holiness together, but also toward the procreation and education of offspring. Now, when I say that word education, don't just think collecting information. Right? We've reduced the idea of, of education in our modern world to uh, just ideas. We're just collecting data and learning skills. But when we use this term education in the classical sense, what we're talking about is a holistic formation of the person. So that's, that's an emotional education. It's really an education to virtue. But even virtue it, itself is um, sort of a, a, an effect, not the cause. So, so the cause of virtue is the ordering of the whole person according to God's design. And this is accomplished in the marriage right, by, by the, the husband and wife, by the mother and father, living their vocation of love, and, and through that love becoming more and more what God's calling them to be, they create an image, or in the sacramental order, an icon of God's love for the world. So by growing up in the family, the child experiences in the home an incarnation of the Trinity, an incarnation of the nature of God, so that in the, the visceral reactions of their body, in, in their attachment, in their emotional development, in, in their deepest core, they are educated in the divine order by experiencing that in mom and dad's love for one another. So when, we, when I say the education of the children, I mean this deeper layer of formation of the whole person becoming what it's called to be. Uh, realizing God's design. The actual marriage itself, right? The, the moment the sacrament happens um, is, in a, is in a ceremony in a church. Uh, so this is uh, between the husband and wife and the form and the matter of the sacrament, the form and the matter, meaning the matter being the physical thing that's experienced, and then the form being the, the, the formula or the words that are said. And the words express the deeper, in, uh, the deeper disposition of the person. So the form of the sacrament are the vows, the promises and vows that the couple exchange with each other. And then the actual matter of the sacrament are the, the words that are spoken. Right? Words are physical things. It's, it's a vibration in the air by which we come in contact, we, we touch one another through this affecting of the physical reality around us with words. But those words point to a deeper meaning, to the disposition of the heart. So the couple are essentially in the wedding vows, promising to love each other how God loves them. So the, the couple approaches the altar, they promise that they've come freely, that right, they haven't been coerced, Next, they promise uh, that it will be lifelong. They promise that their union won't end, that they won't leave each other in this life. And then third, they promise to be open to children. So they promise that their relationship is fruitful. And then the vows themselves, it's for better or worse, richer or poorer, what are they promising? That it's total, right? Regardless of the circumstances, that they're going to stay together. So I've heard it explained that this is free, total, 
faithful and fruitful. And in the, the very rite of marriage, the words that the couple say to each other express these four characteristics, that their love is free, total, faithful, and fruitful. Well, this is actually how God loves us too. So what the couple is promising one another at the altar is to love the other how God loves them. They're promising to be an, an image, an icon of God's love to one another, that through their, this, the, the mundane details of daily life, that they will love each other this way. You know, before I had gotten married, I spent um, four years in the seminary discerning priesthood and discerning celibacy. And, and, and through that time, I studied philosophy and theology in undergraduate and the graduate level. Um, but when I started dating my wife uh, years after I left and, and discerned that the Lord had called me to marriage, um, just in the little mundane details of courtship, of, of discovering that she loved me, um, I, I learned something about God's love that, that no book could have ever expressed, right? In just those first few months of realizing that she loved me, um, I, I learned more about God's love for me than I had in years of studying theology. She incarnated God's love for me in a way that I was compatible with, in a way that I was designed to receive it. Now, I remember when I was discerning out of the seminary, it was after um, I'd become open to the Lord's word about marriage that he had put on my heart in prayer. And then I'd spent some time with that word and it kind of settled in and created this harmony in my heart that, okay, Lord, you're not calling me to be a priest. In one meeting with my spiritual director, he told me, he said, you know, Andrew, what's going to change you isn't that you fall in love with someone. He said, what's going to change you is when you realize that they're falling in love with you. Uh, and, and that was true and it remains true, right? I, I hadn't struggled to love others or to give my life, right? I had struggled to realize that I was worthy of being loved, of, of receiving love. Um, and, and that's my fundamental stance toward God, right? Fundamentally, I don't have anything to offer to God, right? I don't have anything that God needs. By an act of his grace, I have something he wants, right? He wants my life. He wants all of me. But, but that begins by God giving me everything. God initiates the gift with me. And by initiating that, that gift of love with me, he calls me out of myself to give my whole life to him. Uh, but, but I need to be loved first before I can then love others. So I need to, to receive the love of the father as his son, and then receive the love of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And, and by experiencing the love of God, that compels me out to give my whole life um, back to God directly in my prayer, but then also then through my vocation to my wife, and then also out to the whole world through the work that I do. Right? That's the fundamental call as Christians. Uh, and, and at base, I wasn't failing to love others because I wasn't trying hard enough I was failing to love others because I fundamentally hadn't received the love the Father was offering me. Right, so there was something of uh, my, my wife Brittany's love for me that unlocked and continues to unlock that mystery for me. Right, that, that even though I'm a mess, even though I'm sinful, even though um, I'm deserving, frankly, of hell, <laughs> even though that's my reality, as a person broken and fallen in sin and wounded in so many ways that somebody chooses to love me. 
And that shows me God's love. That helps me to experience God's love. And in a way, Brittany's body is a catechism um, in, in her actions, in her choices. Uh, it teaches me the way that God loves me. And then I'm called in a way for my body to be a catechism for her. That written in the mundane details of my flesh, that she would experience um, what God's love is. So in, in light of this, the church teaches that the couple, the husband and wife, are the minister of the sacrament of marriage to one another. You're the minister of the sacrament of marriage to one another. The priest or deacon or bishop or whoever's there on the church's behalf is just there as a witness. And there to bless the marriage uh, as, a, as a sort of the image of God being the, the third in the relationship that the church offers a special grace and blessing and prayer in recognition of what's happening. All right, let's talk about the effects of the, of the sacrament. In paragraph 1641 of the Catechism, it says, The grace proper to the sacrament of matrimony is intended to perfect the couple's love and to strengthen their indissoluble unity. By this grace, they help one another to attain holiness in their married life and in welcoming and educating their children. You know, I don't know how people do marriage without sacramental grace. I don't know how you pull it off. Like it, marriage is really hard. As humans, in a sense, we all kind of suck for a lack of better terms, right? We, we're all broken and wounded. We have trauma in our past and we have difficulty and bad habits and we bring all this into our marriage with us, right? And, and our culture presents marriage as a romantic adventure. And it is that, but it's also not that all the time. There's a certain point in every relationship where you're just there and you're yourself and they're themselves. And frankly, you're not that great. <laughs> I hate to be so harsh, but you start hurting each other. You start damaging each other. You start bringing all of your stuff with you, right? The habits of life that you learned from your parents and, and all the bad habits you've picked up along the way, right? You bring this into the relationship without grace, without the church's vision for marriage, um, while you might see your relationship as like a shared project of self-help, or now we're a, a couple help, right? We're going to try to help each other level up and be better people and make a difference in the world. And, and that can be a good vision. But even more than that, what the church offers is a special grace, a supernatural help to go through all of that. That while it is toward me becoming who I'm called to be and her being called who she's called to be, um, it's also us more and more becoming that image of God's love to the world. So there's a supernatural purpose to this vocation that, that even when the days are crappy, even when it's hard, even when, you know, that fairy tale I had in my imagination of what marriage would be all about is shattered just by the mundane, regular stuff of being two humans trying to share space, right? Even when things are in the dredges, right, there's still purpose and meaning, there's still something about our union that that explodes God's grace into the world. And, you know, there's been times in our life when um, we felt like things were really bad. Um, and then we had these interactions with other people, whether they're in our home um, as our guest or, or uh, maybe just over for a short visit or um, when we're maybe doing some kind of ministry in the church, leading a, something at our parish or, or um, doing something like this. And, and people come to us and, and talk about how they experience God through us. 
right? And, and from our perspective, it's like, man, we were having a real bad day. Um, things didn't feel that great for us. Um, but, but the people around us, for whatever reason, God chooses to use our brokenness and our humanity and our mess um, to bless the world. And, and this is the supernatural vocation of marriage. And this is then also the experience, hopefully, of the children. My wife and I are currently expecting our first child. Um, so you might hear, like, I still have some ideal romantic fairy tales in my head about uh, bringing kids up. <laughs> well, maybe next season of Physically Spiritual, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more. The Catechism goes on in the next paragraph, 1642. Christ dwells with them gives them the strength to take up their crosses and so follow him, to rise again after they have fallen, to forgive one another, to bear one another's burdens, and to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, and to love one another with supernatural, tender, and fruitful love. In the joys of their love and family life, he gives them here on earth a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb." So there's this dynamic of marriage that we're going through our stuff with one another. You know, it, and one way I've heard it says that your spouse is your cross. Your spouse is your cross, right? And, and when Jesus approaches his cross, there's beautiful images of him embracing it, right? Walking up and almost hugging the cross, um, coming into connection with it. But then it's also the instrument of his torture and his death. But then the cross becomes this great symbol of new life, of resurrected life, of supernatural life, a great symbol of our hope in the world to come. In a similar way, our, our spouse, right, you're going to experience the worst side of each other, the worst side of each other. And in a sense, the, the enemy of human nature, the devil, has been preparing your spouse to be a particular instrument of torture for you. <laughs> so in their in their quirks and their brokenness, there's going to be ways that, that it, it just makes terrible sense that you're together, right? And, and you could become the worst versions of yourself together. Marriage can literally be an experience of hell on earth. But on the other hand, in the mundane details of working out that brokenness, of encountering one another's sin and loving each other through it, of calling one another to holiness, of uh, just working out how to pray together and how to to manage a home together, right? In the mundane details, it, it can become an experience of God's love and of supernatural life. And, and, and the process of growing in that love of one another becomes a mutual journey through the spiritual life. In a sense, becomes a, a mutual purgative way, illuminative way, and unitive way. That by going through this journey, it then becomes an experience, a foretaste of heaven is what the catechism is saying. You know, no marriage is perfect, and the church recognizes this. In paragraph 1609, the catechism says, In his mercy, God has not forsaken sinful man. The punishments consequent upon sin, pain and childbearing, and toil in the sweat of your brow, also embody remedies that limit the damaging effects of sin. After the fall... Marriage helps to overcome self-absorption, egoism, pursuit of one's own pleasure, and to open oneself to the other, to mutual aid, and to self-giving. Right, so marriage itself is a remedy for sin. Right, The effects, the increased pain in childbearing, 
the, the whole um, menstrual situation, the whole cycle that women have, this real experience of death and resurrection on a monthly basis that corresponds to the to the rhythm of nature, to the rhythm of the seasons, to the rhythm of, of the lunar cycle. Right? This beautiful image that the woman's body is a microcosm of the whole created order and that, and that a man is called up into that mystery by a shared life with his spouse. Uh, and then the sweat of their brow, the working of the world around them through their profession and through the management of their property, that they bring this dignity to the world that proclaims God's order, God's love, God's nature, right? They're working out this embodiment of the kingdom together, that even though there's this damage of sin in our human nature, that this first, um, this first consolation given to man, right? This first consolation of humankind that the husband and wife um, were, were there in the garden together and they proclaim at least last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And together they were naked without no shame that in this, this is not lost by sin, both the natural goodness of the union and then Christ taking it to a supernatural level that now we experience grace through the day-to-day moments of life. Right, but the church recognizes that it's it's not perfect, that we are broken and and, and you are sinful, like you are going to hurt each other. When you're standing at the altar together, you're 100% guaranteed that at some moment, right, you're going to really hurt each other. That something about your sin, that something you do, something you say, uh, you're going to probably bring the other person to the brink. Right? There's a there's a testing of the covenant, a testing of of love. Right? The, the, the relationship of husband and wife uh, that's promised on the altar, it's a promise to love one another the way that Christ loves the church. The promise to love one another the way that God loves his creation. And in this, in this covenant, in this union, in this love, while we never do it perfectly, we're called to it deeper and deeper. And it's in the midst of this covenant then that as humans were then taking off the fig leaves, Adam and Eve were naked, yet they felt no shame. Then in their sin, they covered themselves. Well, it's now in that covenant of love that the the couple now uncover themselves to each other, right? And this is on the surface, right? The church calls everyone to the same chastity, which is simply don't have sex with anyone that's not your spouse. Um, But the church also calls us to to a, a deeper chastity, a chastity of heart, where we're given to each other spiritually and emotionally in a way that we wouldn't be otherwise. Right? Most, almost every couple I talk to, it's more difficult for them to pray together than for them to be physically naked around one another. <laughs> right? We're called to this deeper connection, this deeper unity, but the core of the being capable of trusting that union, the core of that, the foundation of that, is that covenant to love each other how God loves. And it's in the midst of that covenant that our human nature is called forth to something that transcends itself, is called forth to be more, um, always with the realization of our brokenness. Right? We're never perfect. We're called to this ideal, and yet we, we live in it in a here but not yet reality. It's a foretaste of the kingdom of God. John Paul II called marriage the primordial sacrament, 
It's sort of the first and fundamental sacrament. It's the image of God's love for his creation. So, so the image of God's love in every sacrament then follows the design, the form of marriage. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, this is one of the um, most controversial uh, parts of the scripture. But, but remember, we need to read this and free ourselves, liberate ourselves of that power dynamic that we interpret the natural order with um, through our enlightenment glasses, our modern glasses, our deconstructed glasses of the contemporary culture. And we need to read into it uh, the image of, of stewardship, love, and gift. That's God's design for the natural order. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is head of the church. He himself, the Savior of the body. As the church is subordinate to Christ, so wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word. It's a beautiful passage. This is uh, this passage. You might think of it as um, as like a, a summary of the whole scripture, right? This passage contains in kernel the key to understanding the whole Bible, the key to understanding the whole natural order. Um, it's this relationship of love between spouses. So this call, this radical call to be subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. I've heard it explained that that word subordinate, the word suborder, and so you're you're putting yourself beneath the ordering of the other person. Remember this dynamic: everything is created with a certain design, a certain nature by God. So you're placing yourself at at the call, at the mission of the other person's design for them to be what God's calling them to be. It says for wives to be submissive, sub-under, missive, missio. Missio comes from the word to be sent. So it's similar to our word missile in English. It's to be sent, to, to send it out, right? So the purpose that God created for it. So what it's saying is, wives, place yourself under the mission of the family, right? And that's under the mission of 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 the husband to be the head. Now it's not a lordship of domination, right? We need to abolish that power dynamic that we see the world through. We think of everything as political and everything as as authority. On the other hand, we need to see this through the interpretation of love and stewardship. Uh, so when it says that the the father's the head, it's not saying that the father is is a tyrant. It's not saying that the father is is dominating. It's not saying that the, the father is uh, doing whatever he wants and getting whatever he wants and that the whole family is there to serve him and make him comfortable and please him. No, that's exactly the opposite because it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, handing themselves over. Right? How did Christ love the church? He got on the cross. He bled out for the church. He died for the church. He spent every drip of his blood for the church. He went through the ultimate sacrifice for the church. So this is the mission of the husband, to die for the family. So when it's saying, wives, be submissive to your husband, put yourself under the mission of the husband. It's saying the mission of the husband is to die for the wife. In a sense, uh, St. Paul's is saying, wives, let your husbands love you. 
Um, and if he's not loving you, then call him out, right? Call him to more, challenge him, right? That's the call. Uh, and then it's saying at the end, this beautiful line, that the husband's wife cleanses her by the bath of water with the word. Water with the word. I don't know about you, but that sounds to me a lot like baptism. That sounds to me a lot like the whole sacramental order, right? Water, this natural thing, both a symbol of life and a symbol of death, right? Water sort of summarizes the whole Paschal mystery. And the word of God, the Logos, is Jesus Christ himself. So it's this natural world, supernaturally transformed by Christ's Paschal mystery. Uh, so, so the marriage itself is called to be this image of the whole sacramental order, the whole redemption of humanity, cleansing her by the bath of water and the word. A few episodes ago, we talked about the Eucharist. St. John Paul II would talk about the Eucharist as the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. We'll touch more on this in the next episode about holy orders, but there's this real similarity between marriage and the Eucharist. Remember when we talked about marriage, the sacrament happens on the altar. The sacrament happens on the altar, so it's it's primarily an act between Christ and his church. And that's that's uh, powerfully imaged by the priest who's there on the person on behalf of Christ the head and the whole community there. And so the moment of the sacrament is the moment where the bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And then it's later on that we as the congregation participate in that sacrament by receiving communion. So, so the sacrament doesn't happen at the moment you receive. The sacrament happens previous to that in the transformation to the sacred species on the altar. So similarly in marriage, right? the, the marriage, the covenant, there's the, 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 the covenant happens, the grace happens at the moment of the vows. And then it's ratified by the consummation of those vows. Literally the first time the couple perform the marital act together, the first time they have make love together after they make the vows. So this is, the, the, in a sense, the moment of grace. But the marriage sets up a stable condition between the couple. So it becomes an on, ongoing channel of grace that they continue to dig into. In a sense, similar to like baptism, confirmation, and holy orders, but different, right? Baptism, confirmation, and holy orders, there's a seal to each of these sacraments or a character to those sacraments that changes that person's relationship with God in a way that even endures onto heaven. On the other hand, in contrast to that marriage, uh, while it sets up that relationship where the, the, the couple become a channel of grace to one another, it's till death do they part. So at the, the moment of death, the sacrament actually ends. Because the marriage that's in heaven is the marriage between Christ and the church. So we are taken up into this eternal mystery of love. In a sense, the love and marriage that we have in heaven um, surpasses the marriage on earth in a way um, that we can't even imagine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him, the New Testament says. But marriage is also similar to the Eucharist. So it happens on the altar, right? The vows, and then also the altar of the marriage bed. But then there's a grace that flows out from that marriage and is received by the children 
and by the whole world. So in a way, like the priest going forth and distributing communion to the people individually, the, the couple, by interacting with the world, by stewardship of, the, of what they have, by, uh, by their love and hospitality, where they bring others into their marriage, and by the education of their offspring, in a sense, they're distributing the grace of their holy communion, the grace of their holy union out into the world. So I want to talk a little bit more as I wrap up this episode about how to live marriage, not just if you're married, but everyone. Our, our baptism is often called our spiritual birth. It's one of the images of baptism. So there's this sense of the purgative way of this early journey through the spiritual life, that it's a spiritual infancy. The mystics actually call it an, an infancy stage, and then the next stage, the illuminative way, an adolescent stage. So through our conversion, through our, our supernatural life with the Lord, where we're trying to give our whole life to the Lord and receive his whole divine life that he offers to us, we go through an education process. We go through a growth process, an attachment process, a process of being loved and learning how to love others um, that, that we don't often recognize. Right? In the church, sometimes we really emphasize the conversion Right, that initial conversion of heart, that moment of giving our whole life to the Lord, and then the reception of those sacraments. And we often also talk about education as in the, collecting the ideas of the faith, learning about our faith. But the core of the faith is really learning how to be loved and how to love. So there's this experience uh, that transforms us. The, the education is primarily an experience of love that changes us. So we go through this infancy stage in the spiritual life. You know, the, a modern a contemporary psychiatrist and psychologist talk about this process of growth and development in terms of attachment theory. Attachment theory, that the experience of love from the primary caregivers of a child lay down um, foundational physical and psychological patterns that then play out throughout the child's life. Um, so we all... Um, uh, we all have both good things about our childhood and bad things about our childhood, right? Regardless of how great of parents you had, you're still going to have some wounds and trauma. You're still going to have some difficulties on a natural level, both because of your personal sin, your, your parents' limitations, and then everyone else that sinned against you in your whole life, right? So we're all, in a, in a sense, harmed and damaged by the imperfect world we live in. And we come to uh, our life of faith with this compromised foundation, Right, with this brokenness and this woundedness. So what uh, the, the Christ is offering us in our spiritual life is almost like a remedial formation. We're offered a, a chance to go through that natural healing and at the same time experience a new supernatural life in it. Uh, there's actually a scripture where, where somebody's discussing this with Jesus and he's like, you know, how could we ever crawl back into our mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, you're going to be born of water in the spirit. But we're also uh, going to be raised up. We're going to go through an infancy, a growth, an attachment process in water in the spirit. So we're going to have to go both through a natural healing and experience of God's love and experience. Um, uh, and, and we'll talk more about this in the next season of Physically Spiritual. Um, this idea what we experience God's love through prayer and meditation and then also through the community, through the church. 
and then through the love of our parents, but then also through the love of others who are our spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. A big part of my story are our different priests in a particular way who, who love me and different women who, who have been in my life um, and have offered things on top of the great things that my parents offered me. A, a, an additional kind of formation, additional human love, but also a supernatural formation, a supernatural love. And, I, and I've gone through this process of growth. Um, so as we're going through this supernatural uh, development, um, we need to be patient with ourselves. Right? Children don't just grow instantaneously. It's not like they come out of the womb and you just put some water on them and all of a sudden they're an adult. No, it, it takes time. It's a process. And God is working out this process with you. The second thing is um, when a little, really little baby is forming an attachment, they experience the world primarily through touch. Right? The little baby is born into the womb of the mother and then, and then comes out into the world and then is primarily being, being held and being breastfed, being, um, being uh, uh, cradled. Right? This first stage of attachment happens through this physical contact and, and we're offered so beautifully in the church uh, these sacraments, which are physical, right? This just going to communion a lot, receiving the sacrament of confession a lot, right? Coming to be touched by the Lord in these physical ways. But then also, I think, in, in our prayer, placing ourselves in the scripture, that in our minds and in our heart, we're experiencing the Lord's touch, right? We're being formed to act as if God were there, because God is there. One of the next important things that happens in a child in this attachment development is experiencing the joy and the delight of their parent's face. There's something about a baby that's regulated by the nervous system of their caregivers. And the primary way we are expressing the state of our nervous system as social animals is through the posture of our face through the, the, what's going on in our facial muscles, the smile, the crinkles around the eye, the, the voice tone. All of these things are communicating uh, our emotional state, our, our attachment to one another, our love for one another, our safety. So, so through the parent's face, through the delight of the parent's face, the light of the parent's face, they, they communicate trust and love and safety. And we can't, a baby can't actually regulate itself. It's dependent on the parent's nervous system to regulate it. Well, it just so happens that all through the scripture, uh, the Old Testament and New Testament talks about the light of God's face, the delight of God's face. Um, and it uses images of God and his people as a parent, as a child, as a mother to a child and as a father to a child. Right, so, so we're called to start to experience God's delight in us, right? in spite of our sinfulness and brokenness, his, his delight in us, the light that we receive from his face. So we experience this through the church, right, through our marriage or through the marriage of other people, but then also just through the community of the church, through being uh, just deeply involved in our parish. Right? Is our parish community uh, the hinge of our social life? Is it truly where we invest our energy and receive love from others? We're, we're, we're designed to experience God's love, the face of God, through the face of others. So we need to go through these three stages, this, um, this being reared by the Lord, this physical connection with the Lord, uh, 
the experience of being loved by others in in our sin, in spite of our sin, and also um, to experience the delight of others' face, to be co-regulated by their nervous system, but also to be formed in that image of love of God. Um, so it's essential to do this to be in community. So maybe you're called to the vocation of marriage, and you can cultivate these qualities in your marriage, and then and then share that, spread that out, experience it in your church community through uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ and through the children in your life. Um, but then also, maybe you're not called to the vocation of marriage, and, and it's through an investing in a community of faith and being able to give yourself even more deeply to that life of prayer that then these, this natural and supernatural development happens. In all of it, though, by, by, going, through, um, by going through this experience of marriage, the marriage of Christ and the church that we're supernaturally reared in, and then the marriage of our own parents, and then those other caregivers that God has brought into our life where we're naturally healed and grow and develop, and then also then supernaturally experience grace through the covenant that they have. Um, it's through that experience that we we grow in the image and likeness of, of God in our in our in our life, in the mundane details of our life. Uh, so I would encourage you, just going out from this episode, um, you know, love each other with abandon. Love your spouse with abandon. Give give your life to them in love and trust. Love those around you. If you're a priest, love your church with abandon. Uh, if, if you're called to a single vocation of, of celibacy, whether in the religious state or in the lay state, um, you know, love the church with abandon and ex- let yourself be loved in and through the people you, you share life in the church with. Uh, and it's through this that we then more and more uh, image God to the world and bring about his kingdom. This show and all media on Awakened Catholic is made possible by the Awakened Nation and the Hollow app. The Awakened Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hello.app slash awaken.